Welcome to Prime Time. This week, Robert Walpole, or an episode for exploring the rise and fall of Robert Walpole, Britain's first and longest serving Prime Minister, and for connected purposes. Hello, and welcome to Primetime, the show where we're rating all of the British Prime Ministers from Robert Walpole to the modern day. I'm John. I'm Rob. And I'm Kess, and today we're looking at Robert Walpole. Yes, we are, and this time we're actually going to review somebody, (laughs) I promise. (laughs) But it's been a while. It has been a while, and it's going to be a while longer, because <laughs> Robert Walpole is the longest-serving Prime Minister, so buckle up. Wait, the lo- like, ever? Ever. That's no one so has cool. ever broken his record. Are you saying he did it so well, everyone else is like, can't be bothered? I mean, that'll be for you to judge. <laughs> Setting the scene. We finished episode zero with the 1688 Glorious Revolution, where James II and Mary of Moderna shocked the nation by having a son. This, on top of their flagrant Catholicism, led to an invitation for William III and Mary II to invade from the Netherlands. James fled, William and Mary became monarchs, Parliament was ascendant as the true power in the land, and the immortal seven rode out onto the pages of history. Oh, I remember that. I remember that. The Parliament that negotiated the revolutionary settlement with William and Mary included one Colonel Walpole, but we will get back to him. Oh. Okay. First, there are one or two dissenting voices for William, Mary and their ministers to deal with. These include the Jacobites, people who believed that the exiled James II should be put back on the throne. They'll be a problem for several episodes to come. I've already forgotten who James II is. The Catholics, the French, the Scots, the Irish. This really does sound a bit like the rugby, because <laughs> England are playing and Scotland, Ireland and France all dislike them. That seems fair. Fair. Another group that didn't really like William and Mary was the Tories. And we're going to get into this a little more. Do the Tories exist at this point? They do. Are they not? They're not the Whigs. The Whigs also exist. We're about to discuss both of them. Those are different things. Okay. They are the two different things. The Whigs are Labour? No. No. Oh, no. Okay, sorry. We're skipping like 50 episodes (laughs) before Labour. The Tories are an ancestor to the Conservatives in a hand-me-down way. And the Whigs are an ancestor to... Wait, the Tories aren't the Conservatives. They almost are, and the word Tory is used to describe Conservatives nowadays. I think it is fair to say that there is a degree of continuity between the Tories and the Conservatives, but I would say that they're not the same. But in general, the Tories are ancestors to the Conservatives, and the Whigs are ancestors to the modern-day Liberal Democrats. Okay. And the Labour Party don't have any ancestors. (laughs) The Orphan Party. Parties had essentially emerged from the political muck during the Restoration, immediately following the Civil War. They were much less than formal, but in general the Tories supported the monarchy, the inheritance of power, the status quo. They certainly didn't like that James had been trying to make Catholicism legal, because they were actually in many cases very pro-Anglican or Anglo-Catholic. But they did think that James II was the rightful heir, and so that was just the way to go. Like, who are we to change the... The mind of God. Exactly. Basically, they hate change. They just want everything to stay (laughs) like it was. Apparently, the word Tory was an insult with a similar root to the modern Irish word Tori, which I'm probably mispronouncing, I'm sorry, which means outlaw or robber. The Tories were called this because immediately following the Civil War, they were the group of people who rejected attempts to stop James II from inheriting the throne in the first place, which is called the Exclusion Crisis. 
And so they were branded as, as outlaws by the other side in a kind of right. political slur, essentially. Opposing the Tories were the Whigs. They were the people who were originally trying to disbar James. Whig is a short form of Whigamore, which is basically a derisive hand-me-down reference to Scottish cattle drovers, who are common people. They actually got it via a Scottish movement that was more closely caricatured by using that term. So by this point, it doesn't really mean anything. But essentially, it's saying, well, you're common anyway. Right. So there's one Irish insult and one Scottish insult. The thieves and the commoners. Yeah. Yeah. In general, the Whigs stood for Parliament, for a constitutional monarchy. They were very keen on the idea that Parliament could choose who the monarch was. When George I took the throne, he explained that he had inherited it in his own right because James II had been disbarred. And that way he managed to appease both sides because Uh. the Tories believed in inheriting things in your own right and the Whigs believed that Parliament had the power to grant or take away that inheritance. I see. A good British fudge. Exactly. (laughs) At the time, the Tories were largely made up of minor gentry and smallholders, whereas the Whigs were the aristocracy. Anyway, William and Mary... Brief summary of their reign. They introduced acts of toleration, which made it legal for people to not be Anglican, so long as they weren't Catholic. Acts of mostly toleration. (laughs) Exactly. They also went to war with France, of course, in a series of grand alliances, and they didn't have any children, so they had to work out a settlement, or rather William, because this was after Mary had died, had to work out a settlement with Parliament. And the deal was that Mary's younger sister Anne would be next, and if she didn't have any children, which appeared unlikely by this point, after her, the throne would pass to her cousin, Sophia, the Electress of Hanover. And that is the legal definition that we use today to identify who the monarchy are. They are the legitimate Protestant heir of Sophia, the Electress of Hanover. Really? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Also, great name. This is really good. (laughs) If I ever do drag, I want to be a drag electress. (laughs) (laughs) We've had drag lord protectors. Why don't we go through the whole whole random bunch? Exactly. It's much more interesting than, like, king and prince. We've got Stadtholder for William of Orange and Electress. I think these are good... Mm. Is it because they were involved in electing the Holy Roman Emperor? Yes, because the Holy Roman Empire contained a whole load of very small monarchies that were all kind of jostling with each other. And because of the way that intermarriage worked between monarchies in Europe, you end up in a situation where almost every other European nation had a very similar deal to us, where they suddenly had to sort of import somebody from over there or the other way round. And so there's lots of their traditions that then kind of spread out to other places. Yeah, because they were all related. So they started to have like the Habsburg chin and stuff, didn't they? Yes, that becomes a big deal. The fact that there are all interrelated and sometimes a load of them are interrelated that don't include us and that's difficult because <laughs> then they start working <laughs> against us also it should be noted that when i said that it was sophia the electress of hanover's protestant heir anyone who marries a catholic or converts to catholicism excludes themselves and all of their descendants is that still the case i think it changed in 2013 oh that's so recent 2013 was when we changed the rules uh, from male preference primogeniture to absolute sure, primogeniture. Yeah. And I think one of the changes was that you could marry a Catholic and remain in the line of succession, but you still can't be a Catholic. Can you marry a Catholic and or anyone of any religion, or can you just now marry a Protestant or a Catholic? Well, this is another weird thing, because the, the rules are made when you were Protestants or Catholic. That, that's just, that's the distinction. What, what are other religions? There was nothing else. And even you have weird positions where... If you remember back to one of the previous episodes, the Prime Minister is sometimes involved in the selection of bishops in the Church of England, because it's the established church, so the Prime Minister does weirdly have a say in the choosing of bishops. If you're a Catholic Prime Minister, you can't choose the bishops, because you're Catholic. But Rishi Sunak, a practising Hindu, can choose the bishops, because... (laughs) He's not Catholic. Catholic. (laughs) So that's that's the only rule. It's not you have to be Anglican, you just can't be Catholic. (laughs) Yep. 
after William and Mary, Anne acceded to the throne in 1702. Several important things happened under Anne that we're going to brush through. In 1707, she unified England and Scotland. Prior to this point, they had been separate countries that just happened to be ruled by the same person. A little bit like the United Kingdom and Canada today, yes. for example. Scotland didn't want to join crowns with England. They were essentially forced into it because they had debts and also because rich, powerful people were bribed. Which means that from now on, we're now talking about England and Scotland. Mm. Ireland isn't technically in it yet, although... Wales? Wales had been legally incorporated into England in the 1400s. Wait, it's England, so it wasn't even its own country? No, so it oh, was... That, that was well, Exactly, that's one of the differences between the way the two countries joined. So when England joined with Scotland, it was England and Wales. It was just, that was called England. Mm-hmm. Back to Anne. In 1708, Anne withheld royal assent for a bill. Basically, Parliament passed a law and she said, ah, I don't think you did. And this is the last time that it has ever happened, at least in terms of royal assent. The bill itself was to create a Scottish militia, but immediately after passing it, Parliament discovered that the French were actually invading Scotland, and there was a bit of a fear that the Scottish might be a bit more pro-French than they were letting on, and so we didn't really want to just give them a load of weapons. (laughs) Right. So rather than Parliament going back on it, they were just like, you haven't given it royal assent yet, so just don't. Exactly. Just stop it at that stage. And this is one of those constitutional areas where it's yes but no. The prevailing opinion is that Anne did this on the advice of her ministers, and that this means that if the government and the monarch want to put a stop to legislation, they can. And this did come up even just a few years ago when Parliament was trying to pass various bits of laws that the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson didn't like, there were some suggestions that Mr Johnson may have asked the monarch to refuse royal assent to certain acts. And then there was a huge amount of newspaper coverage about whether this was possible, whether it could happen, what did it mean constitutionally? And then, like all these things, everyone thought, ooh, that'd be a bit messy, let's just not try. And so royal assent was granted. And there you have summed up all of British constitutional debate. Exactly. <laughs> you, you look into the abyss and go, oh no, let's, let's just not try. Finally, in July of 1714... Anne outlived Sophia the Electress of Hanover by nearly eight weeks, thus ensuring that her upstart socially climbing cousin never got her grubby hands on the British throne, (laughs) which instead passed to Sophia's son, George, when Anne died. George the third? George the first. This is the first George. That makes sense, actually. I've only ever heard of George III, but it makes sense. (laughs) Both of us. There may have been a couple of others. I should warn you now that we're going to be dealing with King George in some capacity for a long time, because all the Georges were succeeded by additional Georges, (laughs) at least four in a row. Georges one to four, all in a row, which is very confusing. We'll also... just refer to them as all the same person. Yeah. I'm just going to actually just makes they, it easier. They yeah. lived to like 500 years. We're not doing the monarchs. It's fine. Enter Robert Walpole. Robert Walpole was born on the 26th of August, 1676, in the reign of Charles II. But of course, we had a, quite a quick succession of monarchs after that. He was the fifth of 19 children. Oh my goodness! 19 children. <gasps> Colonel Robert Walpole his and Mary ma- Burwell. His, his mother, his one woman, yeah. had 19 children. Yep. Uh, do you want to know their names? Oh, I really do. I want you to say them all in under five seconds. <laughs> under 30 seconds. Okay. The boys were Edward, Burwell, John, Horatio, Christopher, Galfridus, Mordaunt, Charles and William. Can we go back to Galfridus, please? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> the, the girls were Susan, Mary, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Anne, Dorothy and Susan. That seems That's confusing. There was also 
at least one brother and sister who were unfortunately stillborn and weren't given names. Uh, and you may have noticed that some of the same names came up more than once. Oh, is that like when they name them after the dead children? Yes. Okay. Except that there are two children called Susan that, as far as I can tell, must have been alive at the same time. Look, you get to your 19th child. <laughs> what, how many names are there in this period? Like... I'm, I'm sure that the two Susans must have been alive at once. And I just feel so bad for the <laughs> so second bad. Susan. Yeah, absolutely. Susan 2. Susan. Um, so Robert Walpole's father and grandfather had both been MPs before him his father Colonel Walpole had been part of the the negotiating the revolutionary settlement yep his grandfather was actually a knight of the bath ooh (laughs) also also a thing that still exists (laughs) and so this is a family of landed gentry they have money they have power in fact, when Colonel Walpole chose to get into politics, he purchased 25 burgages in Castle Rising in Norfolk. Castle Rising was what's known as a burgage borough, which means that the owners of certain burgages, which are basically what the Americans might call blocks, just a sort of street corner, essentially. Right. The owners of those burgage tenements were the only people with the right to vote. So he bought 25 votes to yep. vote for himself. Exactly. That's so lame. And he was elected MP for Castle Rising <laughs> By in 1689. I can just imagine his election speech on election night being, I can't believe it, it's such a surprise. <laughs> I'd like to thank myself. <laughs> Every vote for me. About 100 years later, the population of the borough was only 888 people in 169 houses. So I'm presuming that he bought enough votes that he just had full power over the district. Yeah, yeah it sounds that way. Hmm. But it's his son Robert Walpole that we're interested in. Robert Walpole went to school at Eton, and from there he moved on to King's College, Cambridge. Did they send 19 children to Eton? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> or at least all the boys, how many boys I there? I don't know, but I do know that he was a scholar, and they actually lied about his age so that he qualified for a scholarship. Right. So maybe... Um... That's what I'm learning about this family. Like, there's all sorts going on. Yeah. Lies, cheating election, like election fraud. Oh, I mean, if you think that that's... This is just the beginning. Oh, great. I can't wait. <laughs> I'm excited. Starting British policies as a means to go on. Yes. So, as the third son, Robert was initially destined for a career in the church. But by the age of 14, his two older brothers had unfortunately died, making him the heir. So much child mortality. I know. <laughs> Just... Well, it's not quite child mortality because his second brother actually died in battle with the French at Beachy Head. Could have been child mortality. So, so much mortality. In 1700, at the age of 23, he married Catherine Shorter, who was an 18-ish-year-old daughter of a prominent London merchant. Later that year, his father died, and Walpole was suddenly the head of a large and powerful family. So naturally, he began a political career. In 1701, he stood at his first election, trying to become one of the two elected members for Norfolk County. Now, we'll go into a bit more detail about the composition of Parliament at this time in a Prime Cuts episode, I hope. (laughs) But in general, there were three types of members of the House of Commons in the 18th century. First off, you had borough members who theoretically represented towns. So Castle Rising, for example, was a town. There were also county members who were referred to as Knights of the Shire, and they were That's returned. So good. It, is, it is great. It is also used as a little bit of a, um, a lampoon against certain uh, conservative backbench MPs. <laughs> yes, a bit of a Knight of the Shire. Mm. They were returned for a county such as Yorkshire. The electorate in the counties was much bigger than the boroughs, so that meant that they were actually sometimes contested. But in practice, the parties would occasionally agree so that they just each put up one candidate because you'd have two seats. <laughs> um, so it wasn't that much of a contest but it was at least a lot harder to bribe several thousand people than it yeah. was ten people Fair. also the counties included boroughs so the borough constituents could vote twice 
Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Like overlapping seats. Voting involved physically attending at a single polling station and standing up to be counted. So it was very obvious who had voted for whom and or been bought beer by somebody. No <laughs> secret ballot. Yes. And one polling station for an entire county is pretty... Uh... Yes, it did mean that only the people who lived in York could vote in Yorkshire. Yes, or were wealthy enough to be able to just take a few days off and go to York. Go to York. Exactly. Is someone standing at the front of this big tent, like, counting people? Yeah, I mean, well, you're pretty much describing it. What if you're really short? <laughs> Electoral fraud was pretty commonplace at this time, I think. So the other types of MPs that you got was that actually each of Oxford and Cambridge were able to elect two MPs. By which you mean the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. The universities of Oxford and Cambridge. What? Yep. Cambridge at one point, in fact around this time, returned Sir Isaac Newton. What? Was briefly the MP for Cambridge University. Hmm, I believe he um, (laughs) is recorded as having asked for somebody to open a window once. That, I think, is his only contribution in Parliament. (laughs) Um, That's such a good fact. (laughs) That's correct. Later on, other universities would be able to return a member or two. I think this system only ended in like the 50s or the 60s or something. It still exists in some other countries. Yes, I think Ireland, do they? I think some Irish graduates from universities get to elect senators for their university, I think. So at this point, Robert Walpole was standing for election in the Norfolk County seat, but he lost the election, so instead he elected himself in Castle Rising. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. At this point, you didn't all poll on one day, so if you were canny, you could set up several backup seats. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> I like the thought that they're going, like, they still do it by standing up. So there's just, like, a room with one person in it. <laughs> and they're like, who do you vote for? And he's like, myself. <laughs> Robert Walpole's standing at the front of an empty room. <laughs> says, any votes for Robert Walpole? Then he runs to one of the chairs, <laughs> stands up. Oh, I particularly like the idea that you might lose the election and then go, everybody get out of the way, I've got ten minutes to get to Castle Rising. <laughs> <laughs> in 1702... Uh, Robert Walpole tried to get properly elected again, but this time he chose King's Lynn, which was the seat that his grandfather had held, and he was elected. Now, as far as I can tell, King's Lynn was not a rotten borough, but it did have a succession of MPs who all had the surname Turner. In fact, three generations of John Turners and a Charles Turner, for good measure. Oh, it's like the Bloomin' Susans again. (laughs) I know. Well, it also returned Robert Walpole's grandfather and two of his sons. So the constituency may well have been controlled by some powerful personal group at this time, yeah. but it did appear to have actually contested elections, and there okay. were examples of people losing those contested elections. Just not if their name was... <laughs> yeah, or Walpole. Indeed. Walpole was a bit of a surprise to his fellow gentry, in that he was actually keen to get involved. There was a certain type of landed gentry at this time who considered a seat in Parliament to be their due. You know, they'd earned it, somehow. <laughs> But they would bought it. Well, exactly. (laughs) We paid for this. Exactly. It's mine. But they would hardly ever use it, whereas Walpole was not one of those. He quickly joined various committees and he became a prominent Whig. The Whigs were on the up at the time, and Walpole rode that wave. He seems to have made a positive impression because in 1705 he was given a role as a member of the Admiralty Council, and in 1708 he was made the Secretary of War. That is a cool title. It is. That is, and quite a senior title. Around this time, two prominent Whigs called the Earl of Stanhope and Spencer Compton wrote to Walpole asking him to come to the Commons to speak. So we know that he was considered a sort of important person or someone that was useful to have. He was definitely a leader among the Whigs, at least a leader in the sense that he was somebody that people looked up to, even if he wasn't necessarily top person. 
I like that two parliamentarians had to write to a third parliamentarian saying, could you please come and speak in Parliament? <laughs> We'd I, really like it. I know there's some lovely examples that I read of when Walpole was in power of him writing to people and saying, I would really like you to attend the first day of this Parliament because I think some important <laughs> things might happen. <laughs> After that, pff, go back to your rotten borough. So we were actually involved in a war at the time. It was the War of the Spanish Succession. But it sounds like Walpole was more involved from a financial rather than strategic angle because in 1710 he was made treasurer of the navy. He also gave a speech about how royal power wasn't infinite and the law was important and other Whiggish things like that. In 1710, however, the Whigs had a bit of a fall from power and Walpole was suddenly a prominent member of the opposition and in the sights of the newly powerful Tory ministry. So at this point, we don't really have leaders, just prominent people. So it's not like he could sort of hide behind a a leader of the opposition or anything. He was just one of the people that they wanted to get rid of. Also, though, Walpole's idea of peace in 1711 to the War of Spanish Succession was very different to the Tory governments. In brief, they were trying to prevent the royal family of France from inheriting the Spanish throne, including a lot of Spain's holdings in the New World and that kind of thing. Britain fought against this, but the new Tory government felt that it would be very easy to just just negotiate peace and just give France what they wanted if they would recognise the Hanoverian monarchy and that way stop supporting the Jacobites. Right. Walpole disagreed with this. He also lost. (laughs) The government successfully signed a peace treaty in Utrecht and that was the end of the War of Spanish Succession and Walpole was steaming. The Tory government, however, had set about attacking their predecessors, which, by the way, was quite a traditional activity at this stage, (laughs) on the grounds of corruption. So... According to Jeremy Black, whose wonderful book I read about Walpole, they were partisan, but their findings were not necessarily untrue. Okay. So they they accused all of the previous government of corruption. And in fact, in January 1712, they accused Walpole of receiving bribes and they threw him in the Tower of London. Ooh. Mm, He protested his innocence. And we don't really know if he was innocent or not. But it has to be said that over the course of his lifetime, Walpole went from being a quite rich person to an incredibly rich person. And the idea of perks of the job, or what they would see as perks of the job, is well into what we would see as corruption. So it's difficult to judge what corruption is, because by modern standards, it's all corruption. (laughs) It's just all a disaster. (laughs) A month later, whilst in the Tower of London, he was actually returned in King's Lynn, but Parliament voided the election so that he couldn't take his seat. (laughs) Wait, so he was re-voted in while he was in in prison? While he was in prison. That's an incredible vote of confidence. Yeah. Yes, presumably his patrons who controlled Kingsley. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm perhaps being a bit cynical, but yes, it is an incredible vote of confidence. And actually, um, nowadays, it's considered important in a democracy that you don't disbar people from being able to hold office on the grounds that you've put them in prison, because otherwise, all you have to do to your opponents is put them in prison to keep them out of the way. So prisoners can still hold office in the UK? They can. I think the most recent MP elected from prison was in the 1980s when some, I think Bobby Sands... No, I think he he was an MP and then went to prison. Oh, okay. I think this around. is... Bobby Sands was an IRA Sinn Féin guy put in prison for his IRA Sinn Féin stuff, but was nonetheless elected as a member of parliament wow. in prison. Of course, being a member of Sinn Féin, being in prison was no bar to him not taking... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sinn Féin traditionally don't come to parliament. <laughs> because they refuse to swear the oath. Oh, right. So. Yeah. Walpole's imprisonment was a massive hot topic of the day so he very quickly became a household name there was a ballad at the time that described him as the jewel in the tower <laughs> oh, that's, God, that's, that's so lame I was going to say that's really cute but no, okay. <laughs> and a difference of opinion prominent wigs dropped in daily to visit this martyr to the cause and take selfies or whatever they did those days <laughs> to take selfie portraits <laughs> <laughs> I brought a portrait artist we'll be here for ten hours but I sat for one yesterday <laughs> 
he was released in July, so he spent six months in the Tower, but it was too late for him to take his seat until the next election, which was a year later. Back in Parliament in 1713, Walpole re-established himself as an enemy of the Tories by accusing them all of being Jacobites. Nice. This is quite a traditional thing to accuse Tories of being, and to be honest, he probably wasn't wrong in many cases. There's certainly a common theme with the Tory party that it's a bit of a hotbed for Jacobitism. The succession was very controversial at this time, especially because we were still actually towards the end of Queen Anne's reign, and she hadn't had any children. And while the Hanoverian succession had been agreed, everyone was still on tenterhooks about it, and it didn't help that Anne refused to allow her cousins to actually move to London before her death. <laughs> God, what is this about monarchs? And Elizabeth I didn't want any successors, even though it was quite obvious that she was not having any children. Yep. Queen Anne had even agreed who the successors were going to be. She just didn't want them to be compared to her. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, okay. she didn't want there to be a rival court, essentially. I see. So I want a difficult transition, but it's fine because I'll be dead. Yes. Yeah. Mm. However, the transition actually was quite easy. I say that there were there was rioting in a load of towns, but um, <laughs> that's, George that's easy. made it to England relatively quickly, and there was an upheaval of the political landscape. George felt that the Tories seemed suspiciously Jacobite, and the Whigs agreed. So the Tories were out, and the Whigs were in. As I said, accusing the Tories of being Jacobites is quite normal, but it's also quite a natural response to the Inquisition that the Whigs themselves had suffered when they were out. So it's quite normal that when you take power, you quickly roast the previous government over an open flame. Um, We haven't quite developed the system of loyal opposition yet. In fact, this might be a good opportunity, Rob, for you to tell us what the system of loyal opposition is. You may, over the course of the next few minutes of this (laughs) podcast, hear Podcat purring in the background... (laughs) He really likes Robert Walpole. (laughs) Well, clearly he's loving it. So, the opposition is, uh, the government is called His Majesty's Government because they exercise power on behalf of His Majesty. And so there was a bit of a thing during, especially the Georgian period, where oppositions, so the people who weren't in government, the other party, uh, there were often accusations that, well, if you don't like His Majesty's Government, you don't like His Majesty. You're disloyal. Um... And so they started to sort of rename the opposition his Majesty's most loyal opposition, or the loyal opposition, is still the term that's used just to say that we are still loyal to His Majesty, we just don't like the government. We're not disloyal to the country, we're not disloyal to the crown. Still like you specifically. Exactly. Or more like, we disagree with you. Yeah. And I think it's a really important political development, the idea that the people who aren't in aren't necessarily bad people, and that you don't... That they're not enemies. Exactly. So, um, the Whigs are in. Walpole was not given one of the top jobs, but he was made a privy councillor and paymaster general of the forces and the treasurer of Chelsea Hospital. In theory, these jobs would have been handed out by George I himself. In practice, though, he'd probably picked his favourites or the people that he was recommended to pick, who were the Earls Stanhope and Sunderland, and they helped him pick the rest. At the time, the most prominent roles were First Lord of the Treasury, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and the Secretaries of State for the Northern and Southern Departments where, as we described previously, the Northern Secretary was broadly responsible for Northern Europe and the Southern Secretary was broadly responsible for Southern Europe and the colonies. And then apparently they handled internal affairs jointly, but in practice one of the offices was usually considered superior to the other. At this point, the Northern Department had just become the superior office because Hanover was one of the realms that the Northern Department had purview over. So suddenly it became really important to know where Hanover was. (laughs) Did it move? (laughs) No, but I don't think they knew where it was before. (laughs) 
Most of the other senior men were either in the Lords or in Walpole's pocket at this time. So naturally, Walpole became the government's leader in the Commons. Geographically. Yeah. Exactly. He had a very big pocket. It was the size of the House of Commons. This meant that Walpole was put in charge of impeachments, including the previous Secretary of State, Bolingbroke, who had negotiated the Treaty of Utrecht that had ended the War of the Spanish Succession in a way that Walpole didn't like. Bolingbroke fled abroad. In 1715, Walpole was made First Lord of the Treasury and Chancellor of the Exchequer. These titles have fluctuated in meaning a lot, and in fact will do over the course of this podcast, but essentially at this time that meant that Walpole had control over all the money. Which basically means most of the power. Yes, although it's not yet the beginning of his heyday. Okay. Because technically he is working under the instruction of the Earls Stanhope and Sunderland. Right. And they're the ones who've got the ear of the king, so that means that they're in charge. Okay, so they are, they're in charge, but it's not that they have a formal office. It's more just that the king likes them and keeps talking to them, and they talk to the king, and the king cares what they say. Pretty much, yes. And that's also what's going to happen with Robert Walpole. At no point does he get a formal office of prime minister. Yep. In fact, oh. he explicitly rejected the assertion that he was a prime minister. But we decide that because he was the one who was the only one who talked to the king <laughs> and he managed everything, that means he was prime minister. So we've retroactively assigned him a title, he would hope. Him and people for hundreds of years after him. <laughs> we didn't actually use the term prime minister in any official document until Benjamin Disraeli signed, I think, some sort of peace treaty. Our entire podcast is based mm. on a lie. It's not no, the first lie. third of our podcast is based on a <laughs> lie. It's based on a British constitutional understanding. Yeah. <laughs> So yes, but no. <laughs> in 1715, the Jacobites rebelled. The rebellion was suppressed and Walpole called for harsh penalties. In particular, he demanded the death penalty um, of James III Earl of Derwentwater, who was one of the leading conspirators. And in fact, Walpole claimed in the Commons that he had turned down a £60,000 bribe, which is about the equivalent to £10 million today, in order to stay the execution. However, having said, look at me, I'm so great, I turned down a huge bribe here, <laughs> yeah. he also, or at least some people under his purview, sold off the Derwentwater estates illegally. <laughs> so, you know, having secured the throne for George... I, I refused some of the bribes I was given. <laughs> I refused the bribes that you know about. <laughs> having secured the throne for George I, it quickly became clear that the Hanoverian ruler came with political baggage of his own. He didn't understand many English customs, or much English, for that I was going to say, or many English words. <laughs> At the start of his reign. Uh, and he didn't seem to care about the war with France that had been a British tradition for the last 700 years. I guess we keep breaking up with them. Yeah. Yeah. His coronation was in fact in Latin, but he seems to have spoken and written English by the end of his reign. But the Whigs were suddenly required to have attitudes towards Russia, Sweden, the Baltics, all areas that they hadn't really cared that much about before or indeed heard of or placed <laughs> on a map well i mean we did have a global empire at this point but but not sweden but not sweden exactly <laughs> um, so basically because george the first was also king of another country little hanover yes suddenly all the british government had to also care about what would be important to hanover yep. lederhosen Lederhosen. Beer. The pretzels. Secretary of State for Lederhosen. In particular, the Russians and the Swedes, who are both not so keen on Central Europe, or indeed quite keen on it, depending on <laughs> yes. So, differences of opinion, i.e. if you disagreed with the king about what he wanted, that was a test of loyalty, which is exactly what Rob was talking about with the loyal opposition, which we just don't have yet. And in fact, it's quite a natural extension of the Whigs' own prosecution of the Tories. It's, yeah. you do what the king wants, and that makes you loyal. 
Unfortunately, Walpole and his supporters failed this test. A Swedish plot to support the Jacobites was discovered, and the king, via Stanhope and Sunderland, wanted to respond. This was Charles XII of Sweden. He had taken Jacobite money in return for political support. This was called the Gillenborg Plot. George wanted Parliament to agree to give resources to ramp up hostile diplomacy against Sweden and even prepare for a Swedish invasion, i.e. prepare an army just in case Sweden invade, you know, because they might invade and we'd better have an army in case they're going to invade. Mm. Right? We should also, we should take the army, like, right to Sweden, just to head them off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're near Sweden, right? Yeah. <laughs> mm. Walpole was against this because he saw it as Britain being drawn into Hanoverian schemes. Yeah. And he was right. <laughs> and he resigned, despite George I personally asking him to stay. However, he did briefly continue to support the government in introducing a sinking fund that he had devised to reduce the national debt by about £300,000 a year, or nearly £60 million in today's money. A sinking fund is just a fancy name for putting money aside regularly. What he probably did was refinance the debt with a lower interest rate and then say, well, we'll put aside the other stuff and then use it to pay off the thing eventually. Really what happened was he he created a large, rapidly growing pool of cash, which he would later use and abuse to his heart's content. But in practice, he was very fiscally sensible. He just, well, he was very good at working out how to be fiscally sensible. How about I put that one? And then exploiting. Yes. Uh, I think a sinking fund should be what they call money given to the Navy. (laughs) (laughs) I think you have a very pessimistic view of the Navy. No, sinking the others. (laughs) Oh, I see. Not getting sunk fund, that's something else. He also managed to get a number of officers struck off the half pay list, i.e. a bunch of army officers who were still being paid for basically nothing, um, and he saved 94,000, or indeed 15 million pounds of today's money in this way. Goodness. Despite this, he fought the government on every other point. Walpole and his opposition Whigs even worked together with the Tories, as tasteful as it sounds, in order to oppose the government's attempts to dilute the Anglican establishment and other things like that. One of the things that they wanted to do was to repeal the Schism Act, which basically gave Anglican bishops absolute control over schools, although it was never actually enforced. Walpole had officially opposed the Schism Act when it was first introduced, but when the government were trying to repeal it and he was on the out, oh, he was pro-Schism Act at that point, (laughs) just because he was doing anything to frustrate the government. You're saying Robert Walpole was slightly opportunistic. Oh, desperately. The opposition Whigs were a significant faction, although they weren't entirely led by Walpole. But they weren't able to work together with the Tories to oppose the king and the government's foreign policy, largely because they didn't want to appear disloyal. At this point, the government came up with a novel way to pay off the national debt, and this is called the South Sea Company. Do you recognise this name? I recognise the name. It's one of these things that I have no idea what it is, because it's a big money mess, but I can't remember how. So, the company was founded in 1711 as a sort of cross between the East India Company and the Bank of England, and it was intended to take advantage of peace with Spain in order to trade slaves. Oh no. Technically other things too, but... There's no two ways about it. It was a slave trading company, and that was the primary aim, unfortunately. It enjoyed very close ties to the government, especially the Tories, as well as the monarchy, and it had bought a lot of government debt. Walpole had some doubts about the company, but not enough to prevent him from investing £1,000 in 1717, which is about £150,000 today. So Robert Walpole made money off slavery? Yeah. What about I, I do want to say that Walpole wasn't one of the sort of primary go-getters of this scheme, but that's not an apology for him being involved in it. it, That's me saying he's not one of the people going, let's trade slaves. I get the impression that... opportunistically making money from it. Yeah. In my head, I know that it's worse to be someone who's pro-trading slaves as opposed to someone who's dispassionately buying into a company that does it. But 
I don't think there's any excuse for this. Like, I really don't. And I I, I think we're going to judge him very harshly for this later. The company offered an incredible 6% interest on its shares, but it actually struggled a bit because the slave trade wasn't doing as well as they had expected. However, the king became a governor of the company in 1718, and the stock soared. Wait, the king was governing the the slave trading company? The king was a governor of the slave trading company. (gasps) Yep. And the stocks were up, and high stocks are good, right? Up is good, because they do up in green and downs in red. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes, that must mean that up's good, you're right. Yeah. I'm sure they did that at this point as well. On the big flashy board. Mm. Yeah. In 1720, the South Sea Company was allowed to purchase the entire national debt on the basis that the ever-increasing stock prices and all those profits from slave trading that were going to come in someday would eventually pay off the interest. Okay, so we're going to get richer forever without... Any possibility of it going down. Exactly. Everybody wins. <laughs> Everybody wins forever. <laughs> Except for the estimated 34,000 human beings who were sold as slaves, but yep. they couldn't vote. So from the government's perspective, everybody wins. Walpole actually flitted backwards and forwards on this. At one point, he claimed that the plan was financially unsound, but he was later for it. I get the impression that he might have cared more about the government presenting the plan than the plan itself. Right. It's also worth mentioning at this point that Walpole and his faction were sometimes aligned with Prince George, later George II, who was at this point often involved in politics. George I and the future George II did not get on. The king refused to grant his son a political role, they had separate courts, they did everything separately. And Walpole's faction made several attempts to reconcile the Georges, and eventually succeeded in 1720 with a half-hearted but public submission by George II to George I. And the Georgian reconciliation was immediately followed by a reconciliation of the Whigs, and Walpole and his chums were all back in power. Walpole was made paymaster general on the understanding that he would soon become First Lord of the Treasury, and Charles Turner, who's a fellow MP of his in King's Lynn, and Richard Edgecombe, who's another ally, were also made Lords of the Treasury. At around the same time, a number of older Whigs were retiring or dying, so there was a bit of a vacuum of power. But Walpole wasn't in the top yet. And in September of 1720, the South Sea Company, you know, that one with the rock-solid stock prices, yeah, their stock prices collapsed. Are you saying that everybody didn't win forever? (laughs) No, in fact, they only won for a couple of months. Uh. (laughs) The ramifications were huge. The country was in turmoil, confidence in the government, the crown and the economy were all in freefall. And it turned out that a lot of the central decision makers, including government ministers and the king and the king's mistress... (laughs) <laughs> all owned South Sea Company stock that they hadn't paid for. Oh, no. Uh, I.e. that they had been bribed with. Right. Oh, that's... The central figures of the previous government, Stanhope and Sunderland, were forced from office under truthful accusations of bribery and mismanagement. Sunderland had been one of the major drivers for the scheme and had certainly been bribed. Stanhope may not have been bribed directly, but his cousin definitely had... And he certainly owned stock and had encouraged the scheme. And the pressure of the crisis took a toll on his health. And he actually died not long after this. I have no sympathy for him. I know. (laughs) He deserved it. They all needed someone to step in. Someone who could restore confidence. Someone who was good at money. If only there was a guy. Like a a first guy. Like a best guy. Best guy. Prime Prime guy. Like a minister. Like a... (laughs) Should we do this every single every, episode? Every week. Okay. Robert Walpole. They needed Robert Walpole to be the first Prime Minister. <laughs> Robert Walpole stepped into the breach, and in December of 1720, he presented a financial plan. He confiscated about 80% of the wealth of the 33 company directors, and he used it to cover the worst debts. 
The stock of the company was divided between the Bank of England and the East India Company. Overall, he basically just lessened the blow and restored a lot of confidence in the financial system. Walpole defended his government colleagues, and crucially, the king, from public criticism. They were all guilty as hell, but with his support, a lot of the serious conspirators were protected, including Charles Stanhope, who was the cousin of the leading minister, um, the king himself, the king's mistress, the important people. They were all protected, while a couple of idiots were hung out to dry or accidentally died. Genuinely accidentally, but, you know, as a result of stress and that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of the Whigs were very old at this point. Um, <laughs> Ultimately, there wasn't a huge rebellion, and confidence in the government was eventually restored. As a side note, Walpole had sold his stock before the top of the market. Oh, Ooh, that's clever. He made about £40,000. How much is that in today? £7 million. Pounds. Yeah, that's, that's, a good, that's a good deal. It's not, it's not a sort of astronomical amount of money. He spent money like water. <laughs> but it, it <laughs> is quite a lot to me. A lot. <laughs> He doesn't appear to have been bribed, but one of the books I was reading did suggest that he didn't necessarily come by the money honestly. He might have manipulated the system a bit in right. order to get some more money out of the government. Sounds like insider trading to me. Something well. like that, yes. He personally did very well, but he also became First Lord of the Treasury and Chancellor of the Exchequer in April of 1721. His brother-in-law, Lord Townsend, became Secretary of State, and this is generally considered to be the beginning of Robert Walpole's tenure as Prime Minister. The Walpole Townsend Ministry. So he's got two jobs, Chancellor of the Exchequer and First Lord of the Treasury. Both not only still exist, but they had pre-existed. Neither of these are new jobs. Mm -hmm. But we consider him Prime Minister because for the first time he was basically like the only guy really running everything. Especially if the king didn't really speak English or care. Pretty much. It's a bit of a retrospective classification. And there is a discussion we're going to have to have later as to whether he became Prime Minister at this point or at a point ten years later when suddenly he was the only person in power rather than him and Townsend. Right. But in practice, this is the point at which he essentially became the dominant power. And if you're going to draw a line back to when it started, it kind of has to be here. Yeah. This wasn't a huge sea change. But it was important in the sense that Walpole had taken power of his own accord. He had been asked to step into power. And he had done so when previously being on a platform of, I will not just do what the king wants. So he actually did have a bit of a unique circumstance behind him here. Right, yeah, that's probably really the key bit, mm. is that the king has always had ministers in the past, but to actually not just do what the king says, or even work with the king, but to basically be delegated government in a much larger way, that's the first. Yes, and you're right that historians often say that, that the fact that George didn't speak very much English, and in fact wanted to spend a lot of his time in Hanover, may have contributed to this. But this is the point at which authority is delegated to Walpole. And a lot of it. Sunderland, the surviving leader of the previous government, had been screened from the crisis by Walpole, who, by the way, gained the title Screen Master General. <laughs> <laughs> but Sunderland wasn't remotely grateful for this, and in fact took a group of followers with him into opposition and allied with them, them with the Tories in order to form a sort of opposition. One that still actually had a number of people in power, including Lord Carteret, who was Secretary of State for the Southern Department. That's so, so shady of him. Yeah. Walpole wasn't in complete power at this point, but he near enough was. He was essentially fighting a constant battle against some people in his government. To be fair, that could also be used to describe certain prime ministers in the last 20 years or so. <laughs> yes. After Sunderland conveniently died of pleurisy, Carteret's position was weakened a bit, and Walpole eventually managed to banish him to be Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. So he just got rid of the guy. Walpole then purged the government of a number of other non-supporters and packed it with his mates. 
For example, in the 1724 Treasury Board, there was also Charles Turner, who is his fellow Norfolk MP. Yeah. William Young, George Doddington, both also strong allies of Walpole at the time, and a man named George Bailey, who was neither an ally nor an enemy. So he was quickly bought off with a pension equivalent to his salary. Just, why don't we continue to pay you, but you don't have to come into work anymore? That'd be nice. Dream. The Earl of Macclesfield, the Lord Chancellor, was impeached for corruption, and Roxburgh, the Secretary of State for Scotland, was similarly dismissed. So he just cleaned house. In 1722, Walpole crushed the Jacobite Rebellion. With the death of Sunderland, the French government had let it be known to Carteret that they had actually turned down the opportunity to get involved in a Jacobite plot. So they searched Sunderland's papers, they discovered that he had a letter from the Jacobite pretender... Walpole suspended habeas corpus and rounded up the usual suspects and very quickly got to the bottom of it. After a number of people had been executed and exiled and so on, George was very grateful to Walpole for suppressing a huge rebellion that never happened. In 1724, Walpole met a lady named Maria Skerritt. She was the daughter of a merchant and she caught his eye. And he put her up in his Richmond hunting lodge. (gasps) He's married. He is married. Mm. We will get into that. As a side note, Walpole was spending money like water at this time, and he had a most fantastic collection of houses. He had renovated his family seat of Horton Hall in Norfolk, which looks amazing, by the way. You should Google it. It's lovely. Oh, can we go? Primetime trip. (gasps) Yes, we should have a little field trip. Well, his grave is there, and I was sort of wondering if we should try and see some of their graves, because some of them have some quite spectacular monuments. (laughs) Oh, we could could call it Prime Tomb. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's excellent. (laughs) Another spin-off series. (laughs) He spent lavishly on a hunting lodge in Richmond Park, which, because he appointed his son as ranger of the park, essentially turned the whole park into his own estate. That's so cool. Wait, is that the one that's in the middle of Richmond Park today? Quite possibly. I do know that, I think his name's Frederick, the, at the time, Prince of Wales, also bought a hunting lodge in Richmond Park because he was copying what Walpole was doing, which was very fashionable. (laughs) So I don't know which one that would be. Interesting. He also had at least three houses in London, two of them in Chelsea. So he was doing very well for himself. Why do you need two houses in Chelsea? I know, right? Well, you know, I mean, one of the houses gets sun in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Your mistress is in one, your wife's in the other. Well, exactly. In June of 1727, George I died and George II acceded to the throne. And there was an expectation that this would lead to a shake-up. At this stage, ministers held their positions at the convenience of the monarch no matter how powerful they believed themselves to be. And George, now George II, had grown quite distant from politics. He was no longer best friends with Walpole, but he did have some friends who were in the opposition. A letter in the newspaper stated, As their power only depends upon the breath of their sovereigns, an angry blast of that flings them at once from the summit of their glory and the height of their ambition, or at most their authority generally determines with the life of their prince, it being very rarely found that the most expert statesman can continue a favourite to two princes successively. Also, yes, sentences in this era did not end. (laughs) Yeah, I took none of them. I I tuned out three words. (laughs) You're only there while your patron likes you. And that's how it works at the bottom and that's how it works at the top. I do get the impression, though, that it's not so much that everybody thought that the king actually disliked Walpole as just that they expected the new king would just shake things up, just like the way that nowadays a new prime minister is expected to shake up the cabinet. Even if they are the same party as the previous prime minister, they're still going to want to put their own stamp on things. And in fact, everybody expected Spencer Compton, who was the Speaker of the House and George II's personal treasurer, to be promoted over Walpole. However, it appears that Queen Caroline intervened. She was George II's wife, and she was good friends with Walpole, and by some accounts at least, utterly in control of her husband. She encouraged him to keep Walpole around. 
Also, Walpole was quite useful. He gave the king a civil list, essentially a payout, of £800,000, which was far more than his predecessors. That's £135 million in today's money. Uh, what? So He paid the king? Oh, yeah. I mean, this was the how they received £135 money. £135 million. Pounds. So I do have to point out that his and Her Majesty's governments granted a sovereign support grant in the year 2022 of £86 million. Pounds. So we're not actually that far oh. off it now. Although it appears to have gone up a lot in recent years. I think it's because it's partly related to the amount of money that's actually earned by the Crown Estates these days. So yes. if the estates are doing very well, which I think they are due to... Some kind of solar farm? Offshore wind, I think, is where the, the oh. Crown Estate has done very well. There you go. So it's gone up quite a lot. If I'd done this comparison four years ago, it would have looked like a lot more was yeah. given in the past than today. But at least like the, the system now is a bit different because it's the Crown Estate gives money to the government and then the government gives a bit of it back. Whereas yes. back then it was just money. In the subsequent general election, Walpole returned a majority of 272, which was the largest since the Hanoverian accession. That is big, a 272. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's been anything that big. Recently. By this point, Walpole was an institution. He was heavily involved with the financial system. The Bank of England, the East India Company, and the South Sea Company, what's left of it, were all really revolving around Walpole. He represented stability. So George II had to keep him. In the late 1720s, Walpole faced opposition from within. He fell out with his brother-in-law, Lord Townsend, over foreign policy. The general idea of their arrangement was that Walpole would control the money and Townsend would control the foreign policy. In practice, though, Walpole controlled everything, and Townsend didn't, and didn't enjoy that very much. It sounds like it wasn't really one thing, just that foreign policy was a hot topic of the day, and the administration was under constant attack for not being good enough at foreign policy, and Townsend wanted to do things his way, and Walpole wanted to do things the cheap way, so they were in conflict a lot. And Townsend eventually resigned, and in the ensuing shuffle, Walpole managed to promote a few more friends, he settled the war with Austria, and he cut taxes. It was at around this point that George II offered Walpole 10 Downing Street. That's really? another thing that's... that's yeah. That goes right back. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we latch onto as being why he's considered the first. Because he has... He had the house. He's got yeah. the house, yeah. He actually initially refused, probably because he already had too many houses. To <laughs> many I can't keep up Don't with all my one. houses. <laughs> but he was eventually persuaded to accept the house on the basis that it would be attached to his position not to his person, so his successors so can enjoy it. straight away, it's like oh, a prime, prime minister house. Mm. Amazing. Prime house. Prime house. In 1732, Walpole decided to extend the excise to wine and tobacco. Excise is Boo. a bit like customs. It's like an import tax. Yes. There was uproar among the public, who felt that the taxation was oppressive and starting to affect their everyday necessities, like wine and tobacco. <laughs> and also among the political class, who didn't like the idea that Walpole was getting more arbitrary power that he could just use to his yeah. benefit, because excise officers had arbitrary powers of search. And so Walpole was creating a new government department that would have a whole new load of positions that he could hand out and would have the ability to really mess with his opponents. So there was uproar against this, and Walpole very quickly dropped the bill and kind of surprised everyone, actually, by how quickly he stepped away from it. He was not popular at this time. An effigy of him was burned in the city of London. And apparently a crowd even tried to attack him, although he did survive to recount the tale in Parliament, so I'm not sure how much I believe that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Walpole was struggling on. In 1737, unfortunately, Walpole's wife, Catherine Walpole, died. And six months later, he married his mistress, Maria Skerritt. Oh, that's not a good look. legitimised their two children. Unfortunately, his mistress died nine months after this, potentially due to a really unfortunate miscarriage. 
and Walpole was very badly affected by this, unlike the death of his wife yes. <laughs> about a year before. In the late 1730s, Frederick, the Prince of Wales, became a bit of a focal point for the opposition. Like all the Hanoverians, he didn't get on with his father, presumably because he wanted to break the mould, just like they had before them. It's quite clever for the opposition to coalesce around the heir, because that way they can't be accused of being disloyal. Mm. Yeah, that is clever. Or at least not in the same way. And they can set themselves up as the government of tomorrow, because the heir is going to be the king's yeah. Frederick appointed one William Pitt as a groom of the bedchamber. Pitt Ooh. was a fresh and dynamic Whig and a protege of Cobham. And a real hottie. <laughs> basically part of the sort of succession of people who opposed Walpole. Pitt made a speech criticising the king, and Walpole had him thrown out of the army. This was a bad move, as it was seen as a violation of parliamentary privilege. Rob, do you want to tell us what parliamentary privilege is? Goodness, yeah. Parliamentary privilege, um, it comes from the Bill of Rights after the 1688 Glorious Revolution. It's part of the sort of supremacy of parliament. Um, it really is counter to basically Charles I when he came in and tried to arrest a load of MPs for saying things he didn't like. And so really, parliamentary, the idea of parliamentary privilege is basically if you do something in parliament as, part, as a parliamentarian, you can't be questioned for it, you can't be arrested for it, you can't be charged for it, you can say whatever you want. It's total freedom of speech and freedom of activity in parliament. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Also at this time, it basically meant that you couldn't be arrested while Parliament was sitting. And Walpole actually put an end to this with an act in 1737, where he basically said, look, if if something is ha- if you're being arrested for something unrelated to your activity in Parliament, that, that's okay. You don't just get freedom from prosecution here. Two other pieces of legislation that he passed around this time were the Distress for Rent Act of 1737 and the Gaming Act of 1738. The Distress for Rent Act provided essentially protection for landlords against their tenants being fraudulent. I mean, I guess maybe it was a problem of the day, but it rather doesn't... Love it. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. You know, all those rich landlords, it's so difficult for them. They're just trying to buy votes, John. <laughs> <laughs> These tenants keep getting in the way. I know, and if their tenants won't vote the way that they want, then they should... <laughs> exactly. The Gaming Act, and another one the following year, and quite a few around this time, actually, decreed that card games such as Ace of Hearts and all dice games, except backgammon, apparently, were to be treated as lotteries. <laughs> by card or dice, and thus covered by very strict lottery legislation that gave the government control over lotteries. But not backgammon, because all the parliament loved backgammon. Yep, and royal palaces were excluded. So (laughs) if this were the modern day, you'd very quickly have casinos being set up in royal palaces. (laughs) That's so funny. In 1731, a British ship called Rebecca was stopped off the coast of Cuba and relieved of an illegal cargo of sugar. Its captain was a man named Robert Jenkins, who later claimed that the guards had cut off his ear. <gasps> Everything that I read about this always said claimed. <laughs> so I do did think he, that... Did he turn up with two ears? Yeah. <laughs> he was like, they cut my ear. Oh, he they did. They turned me into a newt. And <laughs> one of them was in a jar. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah. No. But the way that they say claimed makes me think that the historians are really trying to throw shade on this and trying to say, look, anybody can cut off an ear, okay? Cut off his own ear. Exactly. Oh, gross. So at the time, nothing much happened at home because Jenkins was trading illegally. But in 1738, Spain started to cause trouble for traders again, and the opposition were very keen to jump on this as an example of Craven Walpole being unprepared to protect foreign interests of British merchants. Because there is. <laughs> also, the opposition had basically spent the last 18 years saying, Walpole's corrupt! And the country had been saying, yeah, yeah, we know, come on, let's go on. So this was a new thing for them to bring up. <laughs> Jenkins was summoned to Parliament to present his side of the story, 
And he's and a gear. And then a jar. Which he's a pickle. <laughs> he's still got it. Mm. There was popular uproar, delightedly spurred on by the opposition, and war with Spain began to look inevitable. Now, Walpole did not want to go to war. He'd actually been quite keen on not having a war. The war of Jenkins' ear. 1739's election results were poor for the government, and Walpole's grip started to loosen. There was even talk of defection from his ministry. War with Spain broke out, which briefly shored up Walpole's government. After all, there was a war on. Yeah, all works. this war had to be prosecuted with extreme care. This was against a major world superpower, after all, and one with holdings all over the globe. And at the same time, Walpole didn't want to provoke the French into getting involved, because that would have been just awful. The war grew less exciting, and glorious victory seemed to kind of shrink away into the distance. It was the beginning of the end for Walpole, and while it took a couple more years, he faced setback after setback, continual votes of no confidence that he just scraped through, and every general election he lost a few seats. He became quite ill, and he probably wanted a way out at this point. But you have to remember that he had previously prosecuted two separate oppositions. This was quite normal that when you fell from power, you were roasted on a spit. (laughs) He tried to bring about a reconciliation between the Prince of Wales and the King as a sort of Hail Mary, and the response was that the Prince would not reconcile unless Walpole was dismissed. Yeah. 1742 rolled around and an increasingly bellicose France added to Walpole's mounting woes. Walpole's own ministers recommended to the king that his resignation was the only credible option. Walpole's, that is, not the king's. (laughs) The king offered him an earldom for his resignation, and Walpole accepted. I would also accept an earldom for my resignation from my job. (laughs) I'd aim aim higher. (laughs) (laughs) Duchess or nothing. (laughs) So... Somebody, whom we'll get into much later in this podcast, did turn down a dukedom on the basis that they just couldn't afford the expenditure that was expected of a duke. <laughs> that was so funny. After the fall. Walpole actually did manage to retire. A secret committee of MPs was set up to investigate him, but they were unable to find anything to bring him down, possibly because he had destroyed all of his papers. Yeah, I mean, mm. what are you, what you going to do? There's, yep. no, there's no backup files on these days. I accidentally burnt everything. Oh, no. Yes. I'm very My sorry. <laughs> People were out for blood, but Walpole was actually protected by his allies, who included George II, who attempted to get his ministers to leave Walpole alone, although not entirely successfully. An article in the London Evening Post pointed out that Walpole was actually getting off relatively lightly, given that stealing a shilling at the time was enough for the death penalty. Oh, my God. Yeah. The Georgians hanged you for everything. <laughs> Including blacking the face whilst committing a crime. So, you know, they were surprisingly ahead of their time. I was going to say, that is bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the term, but it is bad. Blackface was that illegal. <laughs> good, good for them. I know, right? So I'm behind that. I'm in favour of that. Walpole lived for another three years, and in the words of his son, he had lived to see his enemies brought to infamy for their ignorance or villainy, and the world allowed him to be the only man in England fit to be what he had been. What? He lived long enough that lots of his enemies realised that governing the country wasn't that easy, and that actually he'd been quite good at it. So (laughs) he had the last laugh, except that he died from a bladder stone in London on the 18th of March 1745 at the ripe old age of 68. He was buried at the church on his Horton estate... And now the time has come for us to review him. <gasps> Our first review. <laughs> yes. Prime and Premiership. This is the category where we judge them as Prime Minister. We're only looking at the period of their life while they were Prime Minister. 
and we're going to try and judge them through the eyes of people at the time. For example, Robert Walpole would not have been judged by the people of the day as harshly for the fact that he had shares in a slave trading company, which is something that we obviously consider to be completely objectionable today. First, though, we've got to figure out when we actually think Walpole became Prime Minister. <laughs> yes. So there are generally two dates that are taken for this, and the first is the 1720 date when he and Townsend were put in power and Walpole essentially packed the place with his cronies. And Walpole essentially overruled Townsend on a lot of things. Yeah, let's go with that one. The alternative date is when Townsend essentially was forced out. But I have to say, I, I yeah, personally no. prefer the, the former. He was already not doing anything. Yeah. So. Well, exactly. All right, good. This round is going to be out of 30 in total. So we're all voting out of 10. Five is the average. So if they were completely fine, but didn't do anything objectionably bad or particularly good, they would get five. Okay. That makes sense to me. Yep. So, Walpole. Well, there were positives and negatives. And this is the point at which I would appreciate it if you were to chime in with things that you like or dislike about this person. I, I've already forgotten everything. <laughs> okay, so to his benefit, Walpole was considered an excellent speaker. His command of the commons was impressive and unprecedented. He was very keen on peace, and he managed to maintain it better than could be expected of the period. Britain had been at war pretty consistently since 1688, and Walpole sustained at least a decade without any official war. He was also, like, the first prime minister. Do we credit him for that? I think that's, uh, that's going to come up in a later category, okay. I think. Because I think at the time he was just a, a person who was in power. He was just the guy. Yeah. So Walpole worked very hard to keep taxation down. But it has to be said that his guiding policy seems to have been lower taxes for himself and his mates. <laughs> <laughs> to a certain extent, this meant lower taxes for everyone. That so he avoided familiar. war, he kept the economy healthy, he cleverly structured government debts. He was able to keep the tax burden down. For example, the interest paid on national debt had been as high as 14% in the late 17th century. Um, and when he became First Lord of the Treasury, it was over 6%, but he got it down to 3%. So they're paying a lot less money just to banks and things. But he also advocated for a reduction in land tax, i.e. the tax that the gentry had to pay. And in return, he increased the taxes on salt, tobacco and alcohol, i.e. the things that everybody paid for. Also, in his own words, Walpole said... I am no saint, no Spartan, no reformer. Peace and stability are necessary after a time of crisis, but in more than 20 years, you'd hope that something more than just stability happened. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, stability is quite good, and it was a very, very, very tumultuous period beforehand. I think part of the way that, especially going back this far, makes it very difficult to judge is that I would say he was in power for ages and won lots of elections, but the franchise was so small, that doesn't really tell you exactly how people felt about him in a way that a modern election would. And if we're also thinking about like the average person on the street, I'm thinking like, how would we judge this by today's standards? Like, how does the average person on the street feel about the government? Taxes are a huge part of that. And if he's increased taxes on things that everyone's paying for, then that's, I would say that goes against him. Fair. Any other points that you'd like to put? But I agree with Rob, the stability is like a big deal. Stability is quite good. Um, being successful-ish in the wars that you do fight and not fighting that many that you don't fight I think that can be quite good probably Is, didn't he but didn't he like execute someone the, there were several executions yeah at he various stages it's probably not good Jacobite yeah. rebellions that were put down um he but uh, again like from, from the habeas corpus that sort of thing yeah habeas corpus that's a bad one but I mean like executions back in the day if you commit treason I think most people would say yes that's what traitors get 
I don't think that would be a particular surprise. Yes, and I, I don't think he wasn't executing people out of hand, and no. even the suspension of habeas corpus wasn't necessarily something that was being done. You know, it, it did go back in afterwards. He wasn't just becoming an autocrat. He was ultimately, he said, this is what I have to do in order to find the conspirators, and he did find the conspirators. Now, he found the conspirators by turning over the rock that had conspirators written on it, <laughs> i.e. just searching the homes of every person that was on the list of known Jacobites, essentially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that, again, another reason it might be quite difficult and very different from how we will judge modern prime ministers is even the stuff that he did didn't affect most people as much as what a government does now. Governments are in charge Mm. of health systems and education systems, and these things just didn't exist. So possibly even just the government was something that people didn't really interact with as much nowadays mm, that's a fair point so i don't know I, i'd be interesting to see even how you know the popular press dealt with him how people thought in that way whether it was more just the general sort of up and down of the nation the foreign relations the wars the stuff that for most normal people doesn't really happen where they live it's sort of outside and so there were no disasters really certainly the, the sassy bubble thing was a big disaster but he sort of came in after that and calmed it down a bit Yeah, I think my feelings are nothing amazing happened, but maybe we're in a state of a position in time where not many amazing things would happen anyway, and it was probably fine. It was all right. Yeah, I agree. Do you think you're ready to give him a a score? Let's do it. Okay. I was going to give him a six and a half. I was going to give him a seven. I was going to give him a seven. Okay, I was going to go seven and then I I wavered, so... I also wavered, and I think that's valid. And I think the fact that we've come out in a very similar place sounds yeah. good to me. I mean, in general, arguing upwards, I think that stability is underappreciated. Yeah, st- I was going to say stability was the reason I was going up seven, mm. and then I panicked at the last moment and said six and a half. I, I'm going to, you know what, majority rule, though. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to round up to seven. I mean, you, you don't have to. No, 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 I, I've, I've reconsidered. Okay. I think I was going for seven, and then, like I said, I, I panicked. Very well, that is a round 21. Congratulations, Robert Walpole. It's pretty solid. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's solid. Decent. Hmm. Life and legacy. This is the category where we talk about everything else that happened during their life, but also how we feel about them with modern eyes. Okay, so the slavery. Yeah, there's just no way. I mean, yeah, that's, that that's, exactly. a, that's a, a very big minus. That does mm-hmm. loom large in the mind. There are some positive things to say, though. Walpole in many ways developed the system as we know it. He limited the power of the monarchy. He came to power on his own terms. He appreciated that he needed to have the support of the House of Commons and, in fact, insisted on staying in the House of Commons for his entire time. He was made a member of the Order of the Bath, which was revived for him, but I get the impression that he did that because he wanted the medals without actually having to leave the House of Commons because (laughs) that would have been seen as being too imperious, essentially. It was also with the loss of his parliamentary majority that he lost power. Also... Faced with constant criticism in the theatrical world, in 1737, Walpole passed the Theatre Censorship Act, which became law, and this required the government to censor all plays until 1976. Oh, absolutely not. What do we mean by censor? So this meant that the government had to approve of the text of all plays that were to be... That's so annoying. ...performed in the UK. Sorry, so someone in the government is reading, like, bloody waiting for Godot. Just <laughs> lo- loads of scripts. Okay. Like, what is this? Yeah, and 1976 that's is so quite late sick. for that to yep. stop. Uh. Oh God, I'm going to give him negative points for that. That's so annoying. Okay. 
Anything else that you want to bring up in terms of his legacy and how you feel about the things that he's done? Uh, he had about 25 houses. He definitely left behind him some large estates. Walpole's fourth son, whose parentage is questioned, famously built Strawberry House. Wait, Horace Walpole. The Horace Walpole. Yes. As in the guy who wrote The Castle of Otranto. Hmm. And he built Strawberry Hill House like as this gothic palace and then like set this novel there. Yep. I have been there and it is so fun. And I have it on super good authority that there are loads of like hidden passageways and stuff. And when ah. I went there, the guide who showed me around was like, nope, there aren't any secret passageways. Don't know what you're talking about. And I'm oh, of course conv- say that. I'm convinced yeah. to this day that he was lying to me. I don't think I can give Robert Walpole points for something that someone who probably wasn't even his son did. Oh, that's a fair point, Ooh. actually. He did also leave behind a really beautiful house in his seat at Horton and that sort of thing. I mean, he made okay. a lot of nice buildings. Did he build the buildings? He had them built. He definitely oh, okay. had the place constructed. It is a legacy of sorts. I have to say, it's not... Well, if he'd actually built Strawberry Hill House, which is a, a yeah, yeah, majorly legit. important part of the architectural history of this, this country, then I would give him a lot more points than Horton, which is essentially... Well, beautiful. Another place that could be used as Pemberley if you were shooting Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) (laughs) Nice house in the countryside. Okay, yeah, I can see quite a lot of negatives. I know that the next round is more about proper personal morality. So I think skipping aside some of these, I will still say that obviously investing in the slave trade, if we're talking about larger legacy stuff, that is a legacy and it Mm. is a bad legacy for the people involved. I agree, it's bad. I'm going to mark him down for it for sure. I wonder whether we're going to see some even worse stuff. I mean, I'm sure we will. I do want to also point out, though, that it's not just that he personally profited from the South Sea crisis. It's that his big thing was essentially protecting all the other people who had actually caused the crisis. Oh, true. And although at the time they all thought it was necessary to keep themselves in power, I don't really forgive him for the fact that he protected other ministers Many of whom, he didn't do it necessarily because he liked them. Some of them turned into his enemies straight away. But but he ultimately felt that it was more important to protect the powerful people than it was, you know, and to restore confidence. And that's the sort of thing that ultimately allows things like this to happen again. Yeah, that's pretty corrupt. Yeah. And then there's the theatre thing, which is, mm. you know, definitely minus 10,000 points for that. Yes. All right, so he's getting minus 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I would say for Legacy is that he became Prime Minister. He created mm. the office. That is a big legacy. Yeah, His legacy yeah. is this podcast, which is, that's a lot of points. Um, <laughs> plus 10,000 points. Plus 10,000 points, which equals out zero points. So that is big, and he is certainly a name that is remembered. Not all Prime Ministers are remembered, as I think we'll find mm. out yeah, later no, in the series. that's a very good point. That is certainly something to his name. My feelings, negative, but with some redemption. Yeah, I've some got, I've, I'm going similar. All right, are we ready to ready to give us some points? Yep. I was going to give them three. I was going to go with 3.5. I was also going to go 3.5. There we go. <laughs> exactly the well. same as the last round. I'm um, sticking with three, because I think he not only did he protect people who were involved in the crisis, but he was also protecting people who presumably were actively slave trading. Yes, I suppose so, yeah. in terms of that he, he also kept the company bad. around yeah. for a really long time. Yeah. So, life and legacy points are multiplied by two-thirds. This is very complicated. Let's not discuss the maths. The maths graduate is very upset at that. (laughs) How about we'll put a big description on the website or the Twitter or something? Absolutely. Okay, there we go. Uh, So that's a total of 6.7 points for life and legacy. Sin and sincerity. So I I mentioned his affair with Maria Skerritt, but by the sounds of it, he and his wife had an amicable open relationship. Is that scandalous in Georgian, like Georgian period, or were they super chill about that? So that's a good question. And we definitely have to work out how we're going to assess yeah, our idea like, of what sin and sincerity is. Yeah, because like, if 
it from our perspective if he and his wife are in an open relationship and they're both having like extramarital relationships and they're chill with it then like that's fine i wouldn't give him any scandal points for that and also i do think some other people in the georgian period were also occasionally not sleeping with their wives such as george so we're definitely going to have to work out how we feel about it and i think this may even be yeah. a personal choice or something mm. that we change from episode to episode in terms yeah, of sure. the idea that what was scandalous and or what do we think about it for me i think what matters most is integrity and honesty and so I don't necessarily have a problem with the idea that he and his wife had an open relationship. Um, I, or rather, I don't have a problem with that idea, so long as nobody was sort of forced into that situation. But I'm not impressed with him marrying his mistress six months after his wife died. Agreed. That's pretty that's, shady. That's the shady bit. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Shady bit. Also, just broadly, he was quite opportunistic. He was clearly very, very self-centred in a not totally public service sort of way yeah, at all times. Yeah, he was, like, hoarding all those houses... So he actually died £40,000 in debt, which is about £8 million in today's money. That's that's the way to go, isn't it? Doing a catastrophic debt. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to hurt you, you're dead. So he also routinely attacked the opposition and accused them of being traitors and Jacobites and of being corrupt, which he was himself. I don't think it's okay to tell other people off for the thing that you're doing, even if it was standard at the time. I I love that you're like, that's so dishonourable. It's hypocrisy. It's it's politics. It's a problem. And also, frankly, yeah, he had his his enemies executed, hung, drawn and quartered. Did he? Yep. Who did he have hung, drawn and quartered? Oh, I'm going to struggle to get the name, but there were people who were hung, drawn and quartered. Okay, that's pretty bad. Treason, yeah. Also, this is something that I've been kind of avoiding mentioning up until now, but he leaned very heavily on patronage, as it's referred to. Which Bribery. Was, yeah, pretty much. So he could just dole out peerages and knighthoods and other shiny rewards for all of his followers and friends. And this is something that came in basically two forms. There were places, i.e. sort of governmental roles, army offices, bishoprics, peerages, knighthoods, positions in the royal household, that sort of thing. But also pensions, i.e. he could just hand out money. So when he first took power, George Bailey was retired from the treasury board with a pension equal to his salary. So he literally just said, here is a watch of money for the rest of your life. Just go go away. away. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you'd take that deal, wouldn't you? Mm. He could also take away from people. And in 1742, at the very end of his tenure, Charles Erskine, a Scottish judge and MP, wrote a scathing criticism of Walpole and was immediately dismissed from his position as Lord Advocate of Scotland. Oh, that's pretty shady as well. That is shady. Some quotes about him at the time. People are so sordid and rapacious, there is hardly anything but corruption from the highest to the lowest. It has been Sir Robert's masterpiece to make it universal. (laughs) That's that's a shade. That is really shady. So, hold on. Am I right in thinking that they came up with the name Prime Minister as like a sort of slap in the face? They were like, yes, he oh, denied... He thinks he's the Prime Minister. He thinks he's the best guy, does he? Yeah. Yep. He denied being a Prime Minister. Ultimately, he didn't want to be... It was a little bit of a sort of Roman ideal that office is something that you're called to and that you don't yeah. seek power. But also, some people had a real problem with the idea that somebody other than the king was in charge. So, for example, a prominent opposition Whig told the Commons in February of 1741 that... Sole minister was a name and thing unknown to England or any free nations, but taken from a neighbouring nation. <laughs> I.e. saying that it was, like, a French idea that they had just nicked. Got this French. And an opposition pamphlet in 1747 claimed that the king, according to the British constitution, is the sole prime minister, and no subject can execute that power for him without danger to our liberties. 
even if the king can't speak English and doesn't care. Exactly. <laughs> Especially this. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of the people who hated Walpole clearly did so because he wasn't the king and yeah. because he had managed to achieve something that is actually quite monumental in, well, we gave him some points for it, really. Yeah. Sorry. So my question, are we scoring him up if we think he was scandalous and lying? No, we're scoring up if we think that he demonstrated integrity and honesty. Ah, and we're scoring him down. down. So, another description of, of Walpole. This saucy minister, who, by the way, could never get rid of the scoundrel habits of a low education... Ooh. Had... Wait, he went to bloody eating! <laughs> ...had some knowledge, more wit, and much more impudence. The fortune he made was equally exorbitant and rapid. The use he made of this fortune was extravagant and ostentatious to the highest degree. He seemed industrious to erect the trophies of his folly and to furnish the truths of his rapine wherever he went. That when he retired into the country on a party of pleasure, the court became desert. That's pretty bad. Mm. Yeah, people hated him. Or some yeah. people hated him. Well, some people hate him. I feel like you're always going to get... They yeah, did. But they hated him very much on sort of personal corruption, self-aggrandizement. It was, it's quite a personal... It's not like his policies were wrong. Yeah. It was no, very but, much but he's it, a bad person. It is difficult to get, get an understanding of the scale of just how much he handed out offices like yeah. sweets. Yeah. So, for example, George Chumley, who married his daughter Mary in 1723, became an MP and then Governor of Cheshire, Master of the Robes, Lord of the Admiralty, Master of the Horse of the Prince of Wales, Lord Lieutenant and Vice Admiral of Cheshire, Lord <laughs> Lieutenant of North Wales, Lord of the Treasury, Privy Councillor, <laughs> Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, and Chamberlain of Cheshire. He also became a knight of the bath. God, what did he do on Tuesday? <laughs> so he really did just hand out these yeah. roles constantly as a sort of steady stream of affirmation to yeah, the people that's not who great. followed him. But then on the other hand, it has to be argued that that was how things were done in those days. You know, patronage was the rule of the day. Yes, and, but he did it very, very well. Yes. In a similar vein, electoral fraud was very commonplace. I mean, we know, for example, that he purchased... Uh, yeah. Well, actually, his father purchased a seat that Walpole didn't actually use himself, but he presumably didn't use it himself because that meant that he could elect two other MPs who were in his pocket, yes. I thought he did. Didn't he go back and get elected from there at some point? So he did use Castle Rising initially, which yeah. is the one that he owned, but he later presumably allowed two people who were protesting. Oh, but he did him. use it initially. He did. And, and when I say that he didn't get elected there, that's because he could guarantee an election there. So it was always his fallback or the place where he would elect somebody that he wanted to control. Mm. Yeah. Okay. He also allegedly used customs officers to control elections, which I don't know how much that might have just been something that people said that he might do. But it seems to have been almost brushed over as being, yeah, I mean, you just bribe and, 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 and abuse people as much as is necessary to become elected. This was quite normal at the time, but also he made no attempt to make this a better system. And in fact, if anything, he used the system better than anybody had. Yes, and took it, took it up a level. Yeah. And I think we're, we're judging this round like the last one. We're trying to have our own enlightened modern mm. attachments to it. A lot of it's quite naughty. Mm. He's not. Yeah. He doesn't strike me as evil or very, very like a real rotten one, but he's... Quite, he's, he's relatively... He's a, bit, he's a bit shady. Yeah. I think the main thing that strikes me about this is that there are no redeeming features in terms of him in any way mm. attempting to make anything Being better. Or... Uh, I think you'll find he didn't take those bribes that one time. <laughs> yes, Except that he did. He took the oh, other yeah. bribe at the time. <laughs> the public bribe. He didn't take the public bribe. Mm. Of the bribes I have declared. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right, I'm going to go three. Two. Two and a half. There we go. Ooh. I love that I'm more okay with corruption than John. Mm. I just I'm I'm hedging my bets because I reckon there'll be some properly shady people. 
and I don't reckon Robert Walpole is the is going to be the worst of the shady, the shady people. No, that's probably that might be true. Fair. In terms of like lies. Fair. Yeah. So that's a total of five points once we've multiplied it through the magic calculator. <laughs> majority. Walpole's largest majority was a whopping two hundred and seventy-two. Which is absolutely mahoosive. It is mahoosive. For comparison, what's like a bog standard? The current government is considered to have a very large, not an, not an astonishingly large, but a very large majority of 80. <gasps> is that considered very large? I thought Tony Blair's was twice that size. Tony Blair's was about 140, and that was an absolute landslide. Okay. So 270 So like 270 is, is, is... All right, good for him. He's getting some points back. Yep, he's getting 10 points for majority. Going with the longer period of office, Walpole was in power for 20 years, 10 months, and 7 days. A whopping total of 7,618 days. That is so long. long. That's the longest anybody has ever held the position of First Lord of the Treasury or Prime Minister. And for that, he gets 10 points. Yeah, that's fair as well. Yeah, he's really raking him in now. Mm. Prestige points. So these are a couple of extra points that Prime Ministers can pick up. First up, we have peerage. This is where they get points for the nicest peerage that they were offered after the point at which they became Prime Minister. And what was he offered? He was made an Earl. That's pretty low, though. Uh, it's actually not bad. Middle, is it? Mid- okay. middle of five. Okay, well, that's fine. They also get a point if they were ever made a knight of a... Chivalric order. Oh, like the garter? Yes, exactly. Which he was. So he was made a knight of the bath, which was revived for him in 1725. And later that year, he was also made a knight of the garter. I am picturing this like a little scout sash and they're getting scout patches. He's got like a bath. You are not wrong at all. They have a sash and they have little badges. (laughs) 100% true. (laughs) Is the knight of the bath a bubble bath? (laughs) Next up is Progress. Progress is where we give them points if they are a member of our minority, or at least a minority in the case of the Prime Ministers. Um, so if they were a woman, they will get a point if they were a member of uh, a minority ethnic background, if they didn't go to Eton or Oxbridge or Harrow or Westminster. Yeah. Oh, and if they, if they were not able-bodied as well, so if they were disabled... So, and they and they just have to tick any one box, any one box, and they get they get a point. So Walpole was not um, in any way not a woman. Yes, no. Did go to Eton and Cape, but I thought he had a he had a rubbish education. He did. That's that very very snooty quote. Was it a poor poor man's education? Just went to Eton. Yeah. (laughs) Next up is practice. This is where we give them points for any great offices that they held. Great offices, Robin being. Prime Minister, but they all of that. Uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary. Oh, fun. Did he hold any of these? He was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Okay, so, so he, he gets, gets a, point. a point. We'll also call out if they were ever a great officer of state, and if you want to know what the differences are between those, we'll have a Prime Cuts episode about it. We but will. Walpole was not a great officer, but he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, so that's one point for Walpole. Parlance. Parlance is where we give them a point if they ever commissioned into the military, inherited a courtesy title, were ordained as a priest, or took silk prior to being in the House of Commons. What does took silk mean? 
became a barrister at the highest level, oh. i.e., at QC or KC. Okay, I have a question. Were there any priests who became prime ministers? I don't think that's hilarious. So. <laughs> These criteria are based on the way that members of parliament address one another, and we will definitely do a, a, a bit that's about so this. Funny. Walpole never did any of these things, so he got zero points. Finally, we have polling. This is if they contested an election in a seat that wasn't a rotten borough and won in victory being the prime minister. So it might be the victory that made them the prime minister or it might be a victory while they were prime minister. But Robert Walpole did do this. So he gets a point. So basically we're saying no points for lords. That's fair. Yep, no points for Lords, points no away. points for Gordon Brown, for Gordon example. Brown. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. others. But... Specifically Gordon Brown. <laughs> yes. Because he lost his election. Yeah. Yes, the only one that he had as Prime Minister. Yeah. So, if you did above 50, you did well, and if you did below 50, you did badly. How's he come out? Where do you think he's come out? I think cause we've, we scored him quite harshly, but then he got loads of extra points for stuff. Yes, but because the categories decline in value as they go. Oh, do they? That first one. Oh, he's probably come out. I don't think he came out just above halfway. Like Sixty-ish. You guys are really good at this. <laughs> <laughs> he's come out with fifty-eight point seven. We points. are oh, so good at math. Brilliant. Look at that. I mean, you did hear me say all the numbers, I suppose. But also, <laughs> you're good at this. I can't remember any of them. <laughs> uh, so yeah, j- just above, just above average. We all reckon. Right. Okay. All right. Solid. And that's why we've come to the point where we have to make the ultimate decision in the judgment of Robert Walpole, and that is whether he is right on or right off. If you are a privy councillor, that is a senior minister, you get the title right honourable for life. And, and it's so it's shortened to, to right to right on or hon, but it's always pronounced right on, which sounds like right on. So that's the joke <laughs> we're making. So are you a right-on or a right-off? A right-off. The idea was that we would vote against one another if it came to a conflict, but I think first we'll just have a bit of a chat about it. Yeah. There's a pretty obvious case for, but also a pretty obvious case against. The most obvious case for is that he's the first Prime Minister. He's the guy. He established a lot of the things that we now see as being really important about Prime Ministers. I mean, even just the idea of ruling from the Commons, which took hundreds of years to take hold, he established that. And he was actually quite unique at the time for doing it. He also had 10 Downing Street, you know, there were other things like that. I kind of think all that stuff, I think that maybe eclipses. I think just in terms of how we're rating this, I feel like he's got to get it. He's he's the guy, he's Rob Walpole. Yeah. Also, like, no, no matter our personal well, opinions well, on Well, there is a case against him, but I, if you have more to say for him, no, do it now. No, you do the case against, and then I'll tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> so the case against him is that he essentially sat on a tightrope and did nothing. He didn't move the country towards anything. It's impressive that he created stability, but actually all he really did was keep a corrupt system corrupt. That's all he did. And yes, there are things that he did that are unique that we look back on now and go, oh, that's that's so special. But actually, the fact that other people have followed in his footsteps and copied some of the things he did, in some ways, that's really just us imprinting today's understanding on them. Because there are plenty of things that he did that we consider to be appalling, like making his money through the slave trade and handing out positions in a way that today would be considered deeply scandalous. And letting the government read all the theatre scripts. Yes, he also opened people's post. 
Yeah. As in, he personally. had control. He personally. I don't know if it was him personally, but he had control of the postal system. So during election time, he would often read other people's correspondence or have it read so as to work out what was going that on. Is super shady. How did you not put that in the shady bit? Oh, because it came just under the other. Like, it was all under that corruption oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. super shady. There was a lot of it. He was very shady. Also, I think the thing that I've noticed about Robert Walpole is we've listened to a lot of series, and you always find that the first one is normally incredible because they have created this position. True. So many Athelstan. positions. Athelstan. Uh, sorry. No. Athelstan wasn't the first, although he Alf- did create. Oh, Alfred England. the Great. Alfred yeah. the Great. Alfred the Great. Alfred England. But yes, Alfred the Great, uh, you know, St. Peter. Just cut that back, um, me saying <laughs> Alfred the Great, St. Peter. What are the other ones? That we've George had? Washington. George Washington. Who's the first emperor? Oh, Augustus. Caesar Augustus. Augustus. I mean, you know, these are mammoth figures. And Robert Walpole isn't. He's a bit rubbish. He's, he's not quite up there with the other people who, like, create new offices and new positions, which it, it's just... Not, he's, yeah, he's not quite there. I think that he's... There's, there's going to be a limit, even if all the right-ons... There are going to be some really right-ons and some people who just make the right-on... I don't think he's at the top of the right ons, as it were, but I still think creating the office is very important. The legacy, the people who... We remember his name. Most prime ministers, we don't. He was there for ages. Mm. He created it. He set that as a totally new system of government, having one person broadly separate from the king who could just govern, and that is quite big. I'm in agreement with that, actually. I think... I was just going to say, it doesn't sound like we're divided. I don't think we even need a vote. The eyes have it. The eyes, the the eyes, eyes have, have it. it. Excellent. Well, congratulations, Robert. Our first right <laughs> one. I mean, he's definitely going to get knocked off that title <laughs> so quickly. The yes. second someone else comes along who's even even a little bit better. Well, the, the next guy. Next week, we will be studying, we will be learning <laughs> about Lord Wilmington. Lord Wilmington, my favourite Prime Minister. Talking of Prime Ministers who haven't been remembered. (laughs) In the meantime, however, we will have another Prime Cuts episode. That's true. (laughs) If you've made it, if you're still listening, Mum, thank (laughs) you. (laughs) I think my mum stopped. (laughs) My husband has definitely stopped listening. (laughs) Thank you to our listener. This was a primetime episode on Robert Walpole, the first Prime Minister. Thanks for listening. If you just had a great time with this episode, you can follow us on Twitter at primetime underscore cast uh, or email us at writeonwriteoff at gmail.com. And I hope that by now you know how to spell that. (laughs) And remember, never flinch, never weary, never despair, and subscribe to our podcast. (laughs) 